And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. just started uh, uh, an Instagram. I know I'm late to the game, but I just started an Instagram called Eight Cats in the Hood because it's Eight Cats in the Hood. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's blown up faster than any creative thing I've ever done. So, <laughs> I mean, the, the capital of cats on the internet really just hasn't really waned since the inception of the internet, I feel. So it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. What? Well, you know, you, you wrote a, a pretty stellar book here. I got it here. I'm going to show it to oh. people. I'll show it, I'll show it in the uh, big camera. Uh, White Wedding. So we can talk about that. And we can also talk about... Um, let me see if I can pull it up here. So I don't know how to use half the technology I have. Oh, mysterious. You wrote a really cool article changing. for LitHub. Hmm. That I wouldn't yes. mind talking about. Um, oh, you know what I awesome. did? I screenshotted parts of it so that I didn't have to worry about pulling it up. Oh, great. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> and we'll, we'll get to see if, how much I remember about what I wrote, too. Oops. Hopefully yeah. a good amount. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you um, for inviting me on here, too. I know we haven't met before, so it's nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Here. I, I mm-hmm. think most of the people I talk to I've never met in real life. So <laughs> just as part of it. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah, uh, and and one one of the the policies I have is uh, I probably shouldn't be admitting this in pu- publicly because it'll bankrupt me. But uh, whenever a friend is pushing uh, ed- uh, another friend's book or something like that, I usually spring for it and give it a gander. And... Cool. That's, that's. I think that's a if you trust a friend's taste, it's a good way to go about it. I just want to know what's out there. Mm-hmm. So, we're gonna. We should start with. Um, I'm really interested in how people get fine writing. I think because it's that's a special kind of brain, right? I mean, as as a lot of kids, for example, always hated writing. I, I and I would hear it all the time. Oh, I got to write a report. I loved writing. I have a first grade report card that where. And I have no memory of this, I, but I still have my report cards. And the, my first grade report card, my first grade teacher said, I'm concerned that Eric doesn't want to go out to recess. He just stays in and writes stories. Like, that was me. And so 
for and, and I think that might be the reason is why I'm interested in how how people find language as their art form. Uh, how far back do you go? Really far. <laughs> it was sort of I can't remember any time in my life when I wasn't writing. Um, I so my mother is an English teacher. Um, but she's not really creative. She, she's like written, you know, some poems and stuff, but she hasn't, she's not really um, like a writer. She's dedicated to teaching and an amazing English teacher. And so I was surrounded from an early age by like, just, you know, talk about Shakespeare and books and passion for books, which I'm really lucky for. Um, and probably from a mixture of that. And then a mixture of who, like, who knows, <laughs> I was writing these little, like, picture books um, and illustrating them when I was like five years old and you know or I guess five six and, like these horrible like they're you know almost illegible scrawled picture books and like putting them in a little wagon and like selling them door to door in my neighborhood I wish I still had that whatever that moxie was of going door to door in that <laughs> in that publicity way um but yeah so I was always like very responsive to stories and interested in stories and trying to create them as well. Um, and then I kind of wrote, fiction was really always what I was drawn to the most. And I wrote things sporadically um, through high school. And then where my two sort of like paths, I guess, diverged in the woods or for the woods, <laughs> uh, last name, noun, last name joke, um, was when I, went to uh, undergrad, I had applied to a few schools where I would have majored in English. And I also applied to Emerson College where the major was writing literature and publishing. So I ended up having a creative writing focused undergraduate degree as well, sort of, you know, it could have, go could have gone either way. Um, yeah, so I guess, I, yeah, always, just always writing, always writing. <laughs> a lot of reading goosebumps as a kid too. Yeah, I appreciate that, that hustler mindset that you had back, back then. As a wee child, yeah. with the wagon. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard that one yet. That's that's pretty pretty awesome. I think only my like uh, preschool teacher who lived on the street bought one out of pity. I was like, you know, they're for a dime. So yeah, well, like I mean, that. pity but, yeah. pity sales are really important when you're young. <laughs> they really are. They're important now too. I think. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, I've been racking my brain for the past three years to try and figure out how to promote a book without social media that's i think the biggest the biggest problem that writers have is is getting people they don't know to buy their books yeah i've been thinking about that a lot um so my because you know my book just came out two weeks ago i suppose something like that um but even before that you know in the kind of year building up to it coming out i was kept telling myself, okay, like, this is like, get on social media more now, like this month, you'll start posting more this month. And I have had a lot of internal battles with myself about like, well, what is the actual kind of artistic life and writing life I want to lead? And I was like, well, that if 12 year old me had considered that I would have to spend so much time I mean, self promotion is part of it, right? That's, I, I don't, that's just part of it, no matter what internet or no, but I definitely don't want to be someone who 
and spending all of my time engaging with social media instead of writing, which I easily fall into. I, you know, it's fun to look for the Twitter jokes and forget that you want to put the pages down <laughs> for the day. So I feel like I've like, whether or not this is wise in terms of like uh, the financial or logistical aspect of career, I've sort of decided or I'm trying to con- feel confident in the decision of like focusing on building local writing community, being involved with writers I know, um, engaging with like engaging with work and promoting and sharing, even if not online, the work of um, other new writers, other debut writers that I know, I, I guess, you know, is that the, the way to get the farthest reach? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> Who knows? I, that, that seems to be along the lines of the strategy that I've always advocated for. Just mm-hmm. get involved with mm-hmm. other people who are doing the, doing what you're doing mm-hmm. or doing yeah. what you want to do. And actually um, getting to have like conversations in with people, um, getting to hear their work in a way that, that is exciting. Going to bookstores, you know, which are opening all the way back up again here. I'm here in the San Francisco Bay area and stuff is really kind of springing back to life. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, it's just me considering like, that's like the writing life I'd prefer to, to lead <laughs> is even if, you know, like I don't need an, a follower count as much as I'd like to have like an engaging and cur- curious and collaborative existence as a as a writer I think not saying I'm doing that quite yet but that is like kind of the you know the goal or the the vision I'm kind of developing for myself yeah you know it's interesting the the whole follower thing I think one of the biggest problems with social media is that it's based on following rather than something else I don't know what that something else is and everybody I have on has a different idea but um I do wonder, like, would Twitter be, like, a better platform uh, if it weren't about followers or, or, or even just one line? Here's what I'm thinking today. Yeah. I remember someone recently, I was whining about social media, and someone recently told me, it's like, well, it's, social media is basically, it's basically like people advertising themselves. I was like, oh, that, maybe that's why I feel so weary when I'm reading it for a little while. I'm just reading, like, ad after ad after ad in way in one way or another not always right that's not always true there's often like important conversations happening there are um times when i feel like the accounts of like current events that i'm seeing on social media are more urgent or more uh give a more complex view of the situation these are rare times usually social media flattens <laughs> the current events but like definitely like for like in june 2020 during the um the height of like the black lives matter protests i there were a lot more people sharing um things they were seeing and experiencing um in the moment that wasn't being portrayed everywhere else so sometimes it's it's a use it's a really useful tool for connection and for understanding the world and other times it's just a barrier <laughs> i think yeah i don't know why we're ta- i'm still talking about twitter so much i, I apologize uh, well, <laughs> yeah. it's it's the thing that looms over society right now. I suppose so. <laughs> Can't I escape so. it. Yeah. You know, there used to be a lot of really great indie presses in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Is there are there still mm-hmm. many? Oh yeah, there there definitely are. I mean, like one of the most famous ones, right, is City Lights Bookstore 
so and booksellers is still there um there there are many and then there are always new ones um i think uh san francisco has like a sort of a current reputation of being a place where like creativity all the creative people have left and creativity has died and it's not really my experience at all i think just like in probably actually any era it's about who you know and who you seek out and which things you go to right like there are um, I went to a really amazing reading uh, Saturday night, a, a fantastic part of a fantastic reading series that's been around for a long time, Babylon Salon, that is um, finally coming back into in person too. And there are always like people doing cool, amazing uh, artistic things, publishing. There's amazing drag. There's amazing music, amazing visual art. So it's a thriving, it's a thriving city still. Great. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I think Black Sparrow Press used to be out there. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a Bukowski guy, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want, can you talk about your article? What So you wrote this article yes. for Lit Hub. I'll link to it in the description for everybody mm -hmm. who's listening. What pornographic liter literature shows us about human nature? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think the, the essay basically um, begins by introducing um, some experiences I had while writing my novel White Wedding which I consider to be a pornographic novel and I'm using like the definitions of pornographic and erotic as like delineated by writers like Audre Lorde who would call the erotic that which expands connect like through sensory um, experience we expand our connection to others there's also an emotional quality of that there's that like other element of psych like that human connection quality while the pornographic sort of forecloses some of that um net other meaning if that makes sense or that it's not um about emotional connection so much as it is that only the physical experience now other lord would view that negatively but then we have um but i still think that language is like an interest a useful distinction that pornographic is about just like the um continuous impulse and thrust 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 toward lust desire and the physical and physical release there's not as much the um, emotional or psychological elements of that okay so that was one thing in, in calling it pornographic um but so I sort of introduce also um a quote from Susan Sontag talking about the pornographic imagination, this idea that in pornographic literature, we're following an extreme consciousness of some sort that, again, is driven towards that fulfillment of lust. And then I um, look at the way two classics of pornographic literature, The Story of O by Pauline Riage and then Hogg by Samuel Delaney, um, deal with capturing that extreme consciousness and that psychological distance in their use of point of view. Um, and pornographic point of view was kind of my entry point to writing this essay. I wanted to think about this uh, pornographic literature from the angle of considering craft and not so much launching a moral defense of it, I think, which has been done um, many times before and is a converse, you know, an endless and fruit, both endless and fruitful conversation. <laughs> and then yeah so it's kind of a breakdown does that feel like a summary yeah that, that sounds I'm like a little the... underslept today so if i start really <laughs> rambling you gotta just stop me no that yeah. sounds like the article i read <laughs> okay um, okay so i mean i think craft in and of itself is 
that warrants the existence of just about any genre. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, so I'd be, I, I'd never, ever, I've never followed the the sort of morality debate on porn, but um, I also never questioned it. It's just, it's a part of, our, it's a part of us. There's when I was writing my book, I read a lot of different feminist theorists to get like a wide variety of points of view on that, too. and I found them all. Um, I found them all productive, like anti-porn feminism and pro-porn feminism. We're hearing different, all those viewpoints were productive. My thinking about the genre, and of course, some some people are thinking more about um, movies, videos, also like an industry that actually can be abusive to real living bodies versus the realm of the literary, which is, of course, uh, no actual people were harmed in the <laughs> in the making of <laughs> this book situation too. So that's a distinction. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and yeah, I guess the other thing I should say, because this is sort of a point I felt was important to close the essay on, is that this feeling that in writing the pornographic, you are writing solely and focusing on the physical, only that there's not really a person who we need to understand in the essay. There's not like a, a trauma background or a reason for um, different different modes of desire, kinks or fetishes. Um, But while writing that, you also, and creating a character to move through a literary space, I do, I did at least come up against that challenge of, well, a physical body like exists, is seen and reacted to by the other people populating that fictional world, right? So it's racialized, it's gendered, it's sex. And so there's a way in which those things influence that body's access to different spaces, what the physical um, ways that it can, the physical like materials even just around that body. Um, and so I, I found that to be kind of an in, interesting knot there, right? Of like thinking about one element of the self, like the way we're perceived as we move through the world by others. And also like trying to write sort of a defiant and like selfless, self-negating force <laughs> in driving forward in the narrative. So I became interested in that question of both how we don't need to have a sort of solution for desire, but also how much does a sort of tangle of information um, kind of shape potentially like subconsciously human desire as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like the question of how much we consent to our desires was not so much in the essay, but was something I thought about in the, in the book. Hmm. (laughs) At what point does it stop being porn? Like if you were to introduce Mm. trauma Mm. into it, does it stop being porn? I, hmm, that's a great question. I don't know. I don't know the strict lines and I'm not going to tell someone which words they want to use. Um, I think, I mean, there are things that happen in pornographic books that on can be considered, you know, traumatic. Um, there, it's not like things are free of pain or suffering. In the story of O, the character often is um, one, like she is a submissive in a mansion of dominance. She's, yeah. She's also often wondering, like, why am I experiencing this pain? Why do I, why do I sort of, why do I dread this and then? want this at the same time um but I think what keeps that from being true there's no 
I think the key for me is less, it is refusing to sort of explain, right? To refusing to make, to force um, something as complicated as desire into like an easily sort of Freudian, like one-to-one, there's an answer to this puzzle, right? Instead of like kind of reveling in the complications that are inherent to um, living in to sex, but also just like being a person in general. I think sex is just a focus of that book for, but I think some of these complications of how we are, who we are, I'm interested in more broadly too. And I don't want answers. I want exploration of them, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's the the best way to go about writing is, is don't write for the answer. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I find that that's the often the difference between young writing and mature writing is the people writing for the answer versus writing just to explore. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about writing practice because I'm interested. How many writing projects do you have going on right now? Um, I have a novel that I'm working on that I've been working on for a while in fits and starts. Um, I have I have a short story. So not too many things really happening. Um, I had sort of, and I know that I'm not alone in this, but sort of over the pandemic, but even before that kind of a, like an artistic crisis, a feeling of like, is this what I want to do? What am I doing? Do I have anything to say? Um, is this like the best way to make use of my life? Whatever that means. Um, so I was kind of frozen for a little while. Um, I guess it's funny also to say I'm working on a novel and that's all I'm working on. I realized <laughs> like, writers have such a skewed vision of, of how much we're supposed to be doing, I think, um, in our own insular world. Um, but yeah, I, I'm sort of a chaotic and scattered writer who has long fallow periods and then bursts of activity, uh, So I I wish I had like an, I wish I was someone who was organized and sat down for this amount of time every day, you know, did this and this, had this set goal for every day's finish line, but it's just unfortunately never the way I've been able to, I've been able to write. Well, that's the poet. You have the poet format to productivity (laughs) where this it's silent for a while and then spurts Mm -hmm. of activity silent for a while. I find that's most common with poets. Yes, I was actually just just earlier today listening to a little bit of um, putting it together, the book um, by James Lapine about writing um, Sunday in the Park with George, the musical Sunday in the Park with George with Stephen Sondheim. And it made me feel better to hear that Stephen Sondheim goes would go weeks and weeks without putting a word down because he was busy thinking about a character. He said, and just what I was listening to, he said um, he would rather spend the time considering then to what he, cause he said he was a slow writer, which I have become as well, but he then to write a song that might be a good song, but a wrong song for the work that it was in. Like it might itself, like, and I can, I feel like I could compare that to writing a paragraph or a scene where you're like, this rocks. Then you realize this doesn't tonally fit. This has nothing to do really with what I'm trying to say in this overall project. But I, I really liked that phrasing of it. Not that it would necessarily be bad, but it would be wrong for the like enclosed world, enclosed magical world of the of the project. So that's gonna be my new excuse now. Is that I'm just, just thinking about it. around. Well, yeah. yeah. I'm just being like one of the greatest geniuses of 
you know, the last century. So it's totally cool. <laughs> well, you, you know, I, I once, when I was in my MFA, I, I did my MFA pretty late. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and all my, all my peers for the most part were young pro- mm-hmm. or, uh, early twenties ish, uh, whenever people graduate their BA. <laughs> uh, and I remember trying to convince people again and again and again, that half of writing is thinking about what you're going to write. There's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would be like, go away. We're writing a thousand words a day here. I'm like, yeah, but how much does that thousand words matter? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. at some point in my second year, we had a writer. I'm not going to name drop her on here. <laughs> uh, but she she's a big writer, in, especially in the literary circles. I think she's taught at Rutgers and NYU. And we studied her short stories in high school. Um they said, somebody, somebody asked, how many drafts do you do of your story? And she goes, I do one. They're like, how is that wow. possible? And she goes, well, I think about it for a year. So I know exactly what I'm going to write word for word mm-hmm. by the time I, because I don't like typing. So I only want to do it once. So we've got this, this big writer, and I'll tell you off the air who it was, okay. who only does one draft because she wow. spends most of her time thinking about it. So, Wow. Yeah, I, I might have the worst of both worlds and that I spend a ton of time thinking about it, but then I also do find sort of newly have discovered um, a more productive and valuable relationship with the revision process. Like I'm trying to become a writer who is better about putting the words down on the page and t- letting my story kind of take its unex- me the unexpected places it's going to take me without laboring over perfect sentences in the first draft because... I know it's possible, like it was in this novel that um, was in White Wedding, that I'm going to labor over, for example, like two opening, the exact prose of two opening pages that I'm going to cut <laughs> in the last edit too. So I'm trying to do like, I don't know if I'll ever become a one draft and done person because I do think the drafts tell me something about what they want to be. But I, I yeah, I'm just going to have to be a slow writer who <laughs> meanders <Yeah>. too. <laughs> Well, how, I mean, when did you, how long did this, did this go for? When did you mm-hmm. start it? Yeah. So this was my, it started with my MFA thesis um, back in 2015. It started as a triptych of sh- like a short story triptych. Um, so there are three scenes within that take place in kind of a pleasure mansion, sort of in a more of the f- a more fabulous world than much of the framing narrative, which is at like a suburban wedding and those were the starting stories they've changed the middle one especially has changed a lot um but um so those existed and then it became it, it developed um with the help of my wonderful thesis advisor Jeffrey Dechelle and also another um the close close help of another professor there Elizabeth Sheffield it developed into um a you know a structure of an overarching narrative arc and interlocking stories within. Um, but yeah, from, and then it was, so that's seven years from first words to holding, holding the book, I suppose, right? If that's 2015. Um, yeah. So it was um, a thesis that they gave me a graduate degree. And then um, I, um, it was presented to Fiction Collective too, who was ultimately the publisher. They took some time with it. They gave me a maybe, so I, then I spent a year revising it, 
And then um, they give me maybe again, and um, also some editorial assistance from one of their board members, Sarah Blackman. We had a couple phone calls of thinking about ways to solve some of the book's issues. And then I, and then in, uh, yeah, I guess it was probably April, 2020, I was finishing the last edit to hope to see that they would give me a yes. And I had the attitude of, well, you can never predict anything that is happening in the world anymore. So what if I just wrote exactly what I wanted to finish this <laughs> and it, it worked out. So, yeah, so it's seven years, but kind of chaotic periods again of working on it and then it's sitting under consideration, working on it, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. What were some of the issues you had to work out? Um, I think, well, I think it was a less mature book, not mature in the NC-17 rating. It was always that way, <laughs> but I think it was a, it had a little bit more of a, it was at once more vague and more didactic, like a little more of a diatribe in some senses. Um, uh, a little, it was always, and I don't mind things that are like rough around the, the edges, but there was ways in which it felt more like it was fraying than that it was like actively feral. Like it didn't, and I had like one story that I was just really stubbornly keeping in there, one of the extractable stories. Um, that actually didn't almost have anything to do with anything else thematically in the in the book, um, but I really stubbornly just wanted to keep it because I liked it. But yeah, it was one, again one of those things that's not bad, but it's not right for the project. So that was a big one, um, and then and sort of figuring out what was happening um, with consent in the story. Like, what was I? I had one piece of feedback was this book seems like it's trying to say something about consent, but like what? like is it so I had to kind of just like write down for myself and put it at the top of the document what it was I was saying in a way that could inform the pages but without it being stated outright right like how do we consent um to our desires yeah so there's and there are other just little scenes are somewhere awkward little some of the little um scenes but scenes between scenes linking scenes so yeah there's just um there's there are little things, and also some of the res- the edits I was given were kind of responding to the moment in the world too, which was an interesting like peek into the bookmaking process for me. It was like when the press um, was first reviewing it, first gave me a maybe. We were in really the height of discussions about Me Too as a world, and um, one of the bits of feedback I got was to try to give the book more of a point, like something it wanted to say more strongly. And then two years later, when um, when the whole country wasn't talking about sexual assault, um, which it maybe still should, but anyway, uh, the feedback was that it was had like too much of a point. I was like, <laughs> but it was interesting to see how like what what is in the zeitgeist can also influence what a reader is bringing to the book and how much they want to feel something being like said with them about the current moment and also um, where we crave more. I don't want to say new. I don't know. Yeah. Where, where that doesn't feel as fitting, but I'm glad it's a, I'm glad it became, it got the room and air to breathe and grow into this version because I think it's the best version of itself. Um, even if it, even if it was a long process with it for a while. How many versions yeah. are there? Um, I guess probably three complete versions, three or four. Yeah. They, nothing ever was, 
like the overall structure did not radically change after it was my thesis. It was the things within the overall structure that changed, like replacing one story, refining certain uh, uh, places, um, like like removing things that could imply judgment from the main character, this nameless woman who we don't really get much access to her opinions, right? So kind of like looking at scenes and saying like, does it seem like she is reflecting another person's desire that she's judging it, right? Which in judgment is like really appropriate for for her. Um, So little, it was a lot of refining um, and focusing on the way the actual style of the prose itself was also telling the story. Um, Yeah. It's so strange to talk about this this book. It's like odd to discuss it. <laughs> it's, it makes me feel like it's both like something like who wrote that, and also, <laughs> yeah, you know. Some books they're easier to understand when you just read them uh, and then you get mm-hmm. the gist of them. But then we wouldn't have yeah. a show. Uh, <laughs> it'd be two seconds of me being eh, go read this book, you know. Um, <laughs> but so we're. During your master's program, were you workshopping aspects of this? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed, I was. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, I was in a workshop in which we were responding to other forms of art as the, like, sort of birthplace of a story. So we would pick an artist to respond to, and then we were assigned an artist to respond to. And at the time, I was working on sort of, like, revisionist folklore but all of my writing has always had a strong like sensuality and sexuality in it it's not to the degree of this book but in the past everything I've a lot much of what I've written about just has had sex scenes in it when I was when I was an undergrad one of the first stories I ever workshopped had a scene when a character goes to a restaurant bathroom and masturbates and I learned years later that like everyone in the dorm was talking about that story um so I'm like, oh, wow, I'm just really back at my roots here in this book, too. And it was, yeah, um, it's funny because I was such like a, I was like a shy, virginal, raised Catholic little, little undergrad, too. So it was, um, maybe that, maybe that's not even surprising. Maybe that's like, oh, yeah, that is who writes this, this would write this book. Um, I forget. Oh, my God. I, I forgot your initial question. Oh, was it workshop? Yeah. So I was given this painter, Lisa Yuskovich, to respond to, and she does these very, beautiful sort of fabulous sort of or this feeling of a a folkloric atmosphere paintings of like nude women that's sort of cartoonish but but not at the same time um I can send you an image that she has done um to give more context for this late later on but um so I wrote that triptych and it was my thesis advisor at the time who was kind of like clarifying like what this even was what this genre was that it was you know the pornographic and and how it could be more fully that yeah and then um as I workshopped other parts of it uh, I got a I got a vast array of responses <laughs> from my peers but I was at a, an MFA program that um really invited and supported experimentation and different genres so we had a lot of horror writers sci-fi writers um literary fiction writers speculative like there's a huge um, spectrum of genres. So in a lot of ways, this was just another genre in the, in the pool um, being written. Some, I did get some 
hilarious, angry feedback. But for the most part, my peers were very supportive. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, were they just thrown off by the fact that you were writing porn? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Apparently, because of the person I am and other writing I had done, I should have been writing something more wholesome. More wholesome mm-hmm. was one of the phrases that I remember. Well, <laughs> that's that... very funny to me. Oh, that's so irritating. <laughs> um, so, well, I mean, you grew up Catholic, you said. Mm-hmm. So how mm-hmm. does your family feel about what you're writing? Um, my mom is reading it right now, so who knows? <laughs> we, yeah, uh, I don't know. I, there are questions and concerns, but I think that's also been part of my like personal journey with thinking about art and creativity and how much I how much I know that like I view art as both an expression of the self, but also a wrestling with different ideas and exploration of things I'm thinking about. And I am becoming less and less inter- I'm becoming bored with myself having anxiety about it. Is that so? I'm kind of like, I'm gonna write what I am driven to write and have the unpleasant conversations if they come up, but to hope for the best. You know, my dad is my dad keeps trying to make um, people buy the book in uh, airport bars because he travels out for work. So he's that's he's a good pro, dad. That's he's a pro good the dad. book. He's yeah. not like he's not a Catholic uh, parent, <laughs> okay. but he, yeah, he's. <laughs> He's like, I think he's like making people open the Amazon link in front of him. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good dad. Yeah. Um, So going back to the the negative feedback that you got Mm -hmm. when workshopping it, was there a correlation between, uh, I'm interested in uh, the male versus female dichotomy with somebody who'd be offended by it. This was a, it was a male. Yeah, it was a male. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that was my guess. Yeah, was that? Yeah, I overall, I I think we also had like a close community of writers in my MFA program. So I think most of my other peers also like knew kind of what I was up to and what I was trying out, and were interested in seeing where that would go, and were interested in the like queer and feminist theory that went into shaping it as well. Um, I also one of my professors, Elizabeth Sheffield. I went to her to see with a peer to see if she would be um, do an independent study with me about like transgressive literature. And she doesn't do um, independent studies, instead proposed turning it into a class. So we created an, um, a transgressive literature class that ended after reading a bunch of wonderful novels, ended in a workshop. So a bunch of us MFAs at that time in that cohort shared pornographic short stories. So it was really fun and cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that, that they allowed you to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, I think everyone was a little bit like, someone going to like find us out. I mean, we're all, you know, all adult. But it's like, like fight club. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was exciting to get to, you know, it was, it's a, again, it's a program that like really embraces experimentation, but it cares about form and both the limits and possibilities of genre and form and what, and how um, form and content follow one another. So I think, yeah, it was just another, another angle at look, for looking at um, what literature can do. Yeah. Were you always uh, proactive about what you were getting from college? Like in, in your mm-hmm. BA, were you looking at, well, can I, can I build a, a study around this, you know, rather than just taking a class? You know? I was, in some ways, I, I, I feel like this is also like, 
this makes me think this is also poet brain in some ways. Like, yes, in what fun things do I get to read and think about, but never in what will be the best relationship I can make to like, whatever, network in the future. <laughs> so, but um, I have always, I've uh, like school, I find ideas and reading and thinking about um, literature exciting because um, I'm a nerd. <laughs> and I was, I think also because I don't come from, you know, immense wealth. I was like in undergrad on scholarships. I was working really hard outside of my MFA, like in other jobs and in teaching. I always really wanted to get the most out of the experience that I, that I could. I was aware that I was very lucky to be studying short to be studying fiction and art. And I wanted to really like drain all of, all of the opportunities that I could and really, and I knew it was going to be a rare period of life too. When you get to, when every day, you know, the, the big tasks you have to do are reading and writing. Um, Sometimes I was exhausted and angry and grumpy. Sure. But like, I knew another part of me always knew, like, this is a magical time. So take, take it for all you can. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I agree with that actually. I, I, I never really had opportunity to go to college until I was about 35. Mm-hmm. And I took I took every opportunity to wring from the State University of New York every ounce of knowledge I could, every connection I could. Um, and I, I, I think that when you come from a certain background, uh, the worst idea you could possibly come up with is to take education for granted. Uh, I remember uh, I was in the computer lab in my first term and I was like, you know, I'm thinking about reading Moby Dick. What do you guys think? Uh, I hadn't read Moby Dick before. Uh, and the, my, my mentor turned around because he was working with another student in the lab and he goes, you should make an independent study of it. Like Mm -hmm. out of one book. It's like, it's a big enough book. And he gave me the directory for every professor in the college not just in New York City, but in New York State. And he goes, you Amazing. can do a, a distance independent study, find someone. And Whoa. then he showed me like where the literary people were. And I found somebody in Buffalo who's like, I've been wanting to build a study around this for ages, but nobody wants to read it. <laughs> so we built an advanced four credit independent study around Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Wow. And it was some of the best academic writing I've ever done. I I was doing 10, 20 page response papers every week. That's amazing. (sighs) That's so exciting. What are like, and yeah, to get that like focused relationship with the book and then also with a scholar of the book at the same time, that's like pretty phenomenal. Yeah. That's incredible. And and so, so the, 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 the the point of this part of the podcast is to, to, Promote this idea of don't take advantage, uh, take advantage of education, but don't take it for granted. If that makes I think even, sense. yeah, but even like if it's not traditional education in a university, like I think there are oftentimes when I'm doing something in the literary world and I'll be like, oh, do I want to like put on pants to this reading? And I'm like, this is so <laughs> cool that I get to do this. You know, sometimes I think like I, it's easy to get into that crisis mode of thinking about like, oh, is my book selling enough? And like, do people care about what I think? Are my ideas good enough? And then I'm like, 
like if my little again my like little kid self knew that I did it like I she'd be so happy <laughs> like she'd be I was like yeah I don't know there's just a lot that I feel like is really there's so much to challenge and things like good things to critique about the literary the state of the literature today but there's also like they're cool people doing cool things sharing cool ideas and it's 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 great to be able to ever interact with with any of them in fun ways you know if you go to a reading and get to like just offer like to meet a new person and go back and forth on a pun right like I don't know it's, it's cool it's good stuff yeah <laughs> Do you, do you come out of those inspired to just want to sit down at the typewriter and, and go Ooh, at it? Sometimes. Sometimes I um, come back hideously jealous, <laughs> my worst artistic quality. Um, but yeah, sometimes I do. I'm also sometimes I can't help myself to that. Uh, that I'll like, if a, fra- if a connection to what I'm working on comes up, I'll jot it down to um, and maybe it's uncouth to break out your own notebook during a reading. But yeah. If, if I'm responding to it, if I make, if I'm like awake and engaged then I like, I feel like half of my engagement with something is like response to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. One of the most remarkable live readings I've ever seen was this guy, David Ryan. He was the drummer for the Lemonhead, the Lemonheads. Was it like a nineties alternative? Oh, I think band? I, you've had him on the podcast. Yeah. I have had him on the right? podcast. Yeah. I think I listened um, to a little bit of the episode. And, uh, yeah. He had this this story which was compartmented based on how mm-hmm. long he had to read it. So he's, he mm-hmm. he'd go up, he'd be like, "How much time do I have? Five minutes, okay." And he'd wow. remove three cards, and then he had the five minute version on a card. So he had like a like a three minute version, a five minute version, a ten minute version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and everybody at the end was just really deflated. They're like, "Ah, oh, we can't top this." <laughs> that's that's really cool. That's really inventive and engaging and a cool way of thinking about form and like the, the relationship between the written word on the page and time externally. That's fascinating to me. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. I, I've seen, oh God, I've seen some, some really cool readings. Like I always think about seeing, I went to um, the Tin House Writers Workshop when I was a young recent grad and I saw Dorothy Allison read there and she's just like such a powerful figure and a powerful reader you just like she the way she speaks is as though she's like preaching while she's reading it really like grabbed you by the grabbed you by the throat and she also like talked a lot about like making reading in public a different animal than just reading off your page right she would like give that audience there who's there in that format something different so it's made me try to Sometimes I feel like what I'm choosing to read at a reading isn't like my necessarily always going to be like the thing I think is the best. But I think it's what I think is best suited to that place. Most engaging. Yeah. Or at, um, I went to the University of Colorado Boulder for my MFA and um, one of the readings there, um, some of my peers organized this amazing reading in the planetarium. So they invited poets like um, Jennifer Tamayo and uh, the singer and performer Mickey Blanco and Jennifer Tamayo projected images on the ceiling of the planetarium as part of her, um, as part of their reading. And it was just like to be completely immersed in the poetic project in that way, like that the whole ceiling 
And the whole auditory experience, auditory experience was also poetry. So much you can do. So much you can do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you were, you were an editor for the literary journal in Colorado. Yeah, um, I was an one? editor for Timber Journal, Timber, and that's yeah, the yeah. one that was run, it's run out of the MFA program. Yeah. There. Uh, yeah, yeah. Were you guys taking submissions from, I assume, some MFA people? Were you, you were taking external ones as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a huge variety. Yeah, yeah. A huge variety of people. Was there, mm-hmm. was there a lot of... Um, I, I know that when I, I was in my BA and I'd been asked to read for one of the journals there and I had this awakening of everything I was doing wrong when I started reading submissions and hold mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it's good. Cat, cat interruptions are the best yeah. interruptions. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> Something fell. Hopefully. Oh, here. Yeah. That's, not, that's my recorder. Okay. Uh-oh. Yeah, that's good, though. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so, yeah, I had this awakening of everything I was doing wrong, and just one term of reading submitted stories changed my voice completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a similar experience in realizing just how important that opening of a story really is, that first paragraph, that first line. Not that it needs to be doing any kind of trick, that you like really want to be starting to say, give an idea of what this world of this story or the the focus of this story is going to be something to show your unique literary voice. Yeah. I, I, I definitely had that experience. <laughs> yeah. I call it an attack line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And every time I, I go into a document, I reread the attack line until I have to start writing again. That way I have that rhythm down. Yeah, uh, and I didn't have that that way of writing before. Like yeah. it, it really just came out of wow. Okay, I think what I'm doing wrong is what I'm seeing here. But it's hard to see it when until you're seeing every everyone else and what they're doing. And when you see a series of it, like ten examples in a row of kind of the same kind of muddy opening, and you're like, oh. Apparently everyone opens stories this way and it's boring. So how do I not do that? Right. Yeah. I also, you know, something I should remind myself of more than I'm remembering thinking about this is the experience of reading slush pile also and picking those stories that we were excited about and going to publish also showed me like both how much harsher, but also how much more forgiving an editorial staff of lit mag actually is like the stories I was drawn to weren't always perfect but they had something dynamic and special about them. But I, but um, there, there wasn't like, there's a perfectionism that I can like limit my own writing. I think sometimes when um, I think some of that wildness and like soul expression can be more, (laughs) more important. Yeah. I think maybe that's, I should remind myself of that more often. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One of the, um, one of the battles I lost was this story submitted by a Chinese immigrant who he wrote a really engaging, detailed story about growing up poor in China, being told that he wasn't he was forbidden from getting educated. And so he was like smuggled to the United States as a kid. Yeah. And uh, he still speaks Chinese, speaks very broken English because um, he grew up in a really thick Chinese community, didn't have access to a lot of mm-hmm. uh, English speakers. Um, 
And I said, you guys got to look past this because it's a really important story, regardless of the fact that he can't command English all that well. Uh, yeah. He can command it about as well as me. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that well. Uh, and uh, they just they couldn't look past the fact, though, that it wasn't sleek. Um, and, I, and, and I really I really wish that his story had gotten out there some way because uh, this guy was talking about stuff I'd never heard of that they're not even writing about yeah. today. Yeah. It's too bad that I know so many small lit mags are like stretched thin and their editorial staff too. It's how amazing would it have been if someone was able to say, what if I collaborate with him to smooth out places that are really bothering everybody, but we can um, get those important, this important thing. We're also like, there's something, I don't know, there's something really interesting about seeing language in translation or seeing, I think that like bilingual or hybrid lingual works can be, can be really exciting. Like I, I think I, maybe I'm not like a lot of other readers in this way, but I don't need to always um, completely understand every single thing on the page <laughs> to get a full experience of yeah. the work. You know what I mean? Like even, yeah. Yeah, and I like that that approach too, where like the like translation. I don't need to logically understand. Yeah, I hope yeah. I will like emotionally understand it. <laughs> Sorry, oh, to yeah, interrupt. yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. The but the, this idea that the trans the 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 tattered translation itself is part of the artwork mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense to me, and I never mm-hmm. even thought about it that way until now. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, I fought tooth and nail for the guy. I even offered to do what you suggested, uh, uh, work with him. But they're like, yeah. nah, nah, you got to work on your studies or whatever. And I'm like, ugh. That's such a bummer. Yeah. What a missed opportunity. Yeah. Oh, well. It's, it's, hmm. it's too bad you could, like, can't contact him now. Like, a, you've got mail, literary mag situation. Reconnect, collaborate today. Because you still think about it, so. Yeah, I don't remember his name. Yeah. Uh, he was the president of the chess club. Um, I know this is like an hour in and I'm really oh, yeah. late. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I, I, I just noticed your Grey Gardens poster an hour oh, later. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's my little Edie looking over me. Hey. Uh-huh. Next to my fan of the opera poster. <laughs> um, yeah, she... I mean, I love Grey Gardens, obviously. Um, she's sort of my guiding force for the second, uh, the second novel I'm working on um, that has an enmeshed mother-daughter relationship in a isolated community. Um, so, a, so there are clips of Grey Gardens that sometimes I'll just watch over and over to try to under, to try to enter in the rhythm of their their conversation and dialogue, and especially like the associative leaps. Mm. and spirals into the past um, that happened between those two women. Highly recommend the yeah. documentary to anyone who has not watched it, who's listening. Yeah. The yeah, show with Drew Barrymore is pretty good, but the, the original documentary is where it's at. <laughs> no, I would say the documentary, if especially if you want to be a writer, should be like a staple. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. There's a pretty incredible book. Um, it's I see it from afar that was organized by like the children of the directors of the documentary um, that has, that has like a bunch of collages of images on every page. And also it has a lot of the transcript 
of the actual documentary. So you can see some of their conversations, not dialogue, right? Because it wasn't scripted, but you can see um, how they talk to one another in the printed word as well, which for my brain is really useful to understand like the syntax and language too. So it's, it's a really great book if you can get your hands on it. It's just called Grey Gardens. It's free new projects. It looks like it's the publisher. I'll look it up and I'll put it in the description. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, that, that's a great, great idea. I, I often watch a lot of movies with subtitles just to see the context of it. Mm-hmm. To actually see the shape of the words. It's why I'm not good at listening to fiction audiobooks. There's something about like seeing the text that com- communicates to my brain uh, somehow and makes me understand how to reproduce it in a different way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh I hope you sell lots of copies of this book. It's really, I mean, there's an energy to this thing. That's just, I mean, I don't get jealous of other writers, but if I did, I'd be jealous of you. Uh, No, he is jealous of there. Oh, (laughs) well, that's very nice of you. Thank you. I, I'm very proud of the version that exists out in the world now. I, I think it's, I, I hope it feels kind of like, um, a magic spell being cast over the reader some of the best the best feedback I've gotten is like that like I invaded people's olfactory senses. So yeah, uh-huh. that's a compliment. Uh huh. I think so. I think so. So yes, if you want to be have your olfactory senses invaded, it's the book for the book for you. <laughs> All right, I'll put a link to it in the description for everybody out there. Uh, it's called The White Wedding by Kathleen J. Woods. I, I wish you the best of success with this and all the future projects that you do and you. hope you come yeah. back on when you have another book well, hey, or awesome. if you just okay. want to shoot the shit you know <laughs> let me know that's motivation to get that other book get that yeah. other book done yeah best of luck to you with your projects too thank you, you, know, you a... all right bye. thank you bye Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.